I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. <music> Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. This is part six of Clear Shakespeare Midsummer Night's Dream. It's the last part. Thanks for hanging in all the way. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks to help make it all possible. Either way, I hope you'll subscribe to Clear Shakespeare on iTunes. And if you really like it, please leave a good review. Now grab your copy of A Midsummer Night's Dream, open to Act 5, Scene 1, and we'll begin. And the first thing you'll notice that's strange about Act 5, Scene 1 of this play is that it exists at all. Because the play is basically done after Act 4, Scene 1. All the threads are wrapped up, we know where everyone's going, the major conflicts are resolved. So what's the deal with having an Act 5 at all? Well, some of it is just straight up showing off. Remember, Shakespeare is still relatively young, both as a person and as a playwright, when he writes this play. He's maybe 29 or 30. And so I think a part of this is a guy coming into his full powers, just trying to demonstrate what he can do with language and with structure and with character. So as you'll see, the bulk of the scene is made up with this Pyramus and Thisbe play, which is a great chance for him to write a parody, really over-the-top comedy, a little play within a play, and just show off how good he is at stuff like that. Some of it, as you'll see at the very end, is just beautiful poetry. And some of it, as you'll see right here at the beginning, is about showing off what he can do with themes. And this actually works especially well if you believe the theory that this play was written for a nobleman's wedding. Because you have all these important people sitting around after dinner at a wedding, watching a bunch of important people sitting around after dinner at a wedding, watching another entertainment. This is a meta sandwich slathered with metanaise. It is as meta as anything could possibly be. It's like a way of watching the audience reflected back at itself. And here in this first moment, you'll see a speech that basically sums up every single one of this play's ideas in beautiful language. So it starts up with Theseus and Hippolyta, newly married, coming in after their wedding meal to decide what's going to happen next. And just as we saw the mechanicals run out to the wedding in the previous scene, here we see the participants in the wedding entering, and in fact entering mid-conversation, which is Shakespeare's favorite trick for starting a scene. It feels like we're in the middle of something that's already going on. So Hippolyta turns to Theseus and says, "'Tis strange, my Theseus, that these lovers speak of." When she says that, what she essentially means is what. So what these lovers speak of is strange. And in that style of wit, Theseus takes her word strange as his cue and says, more strange than true. Yeah, these stories are so strange that they can't possibly be true. He goes on, I never may believe these antique fables nor these fairy toys. Antique here is something more like our word antiquated, like meaning old-fashioned, nor these fairy toys, not like fairy Rubik's cubes, like old wives' tales or kind of nonsense stories. It's kind of an in-joke to see him talking about the antique fables and the fairy toys after we've seen all those things come true. And he goes on to try to explain why they're telling these stories. He says, Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies, that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. So lovers and madmen, people who are in love and people who are crazy, have such seething brains. That's a really deliberate word choice. It literally means boiling or bubbling or even fermenting. You can just picture the brain boiling away. Such shaping fantasies. Fantasies, remember, means imaginations. And shaping, you can kind of get from the sense of the word. It means they create. Imaginations that create things. So that then reflects back on seething brains, as though the little bubbles popping in the brain are imaginative creation. And what does he say about these brains and fantasies? That they apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. And that's a very deliberate contrasting of apprehend and comprehend. Shakespeare does it a few times in his other works as well. So it's really important to make that distinction clear. So apprehend is a kind of imagination that thinks up from nothing. It conceives totally in itself. 
And comprehending is more like making it real. So we can have our modern sense of understanding, but you could also think of it more like logical imagination, like something that comes into the brain because it sees it. So apprehension is more the imaginative side and comprehension is more the logical side. And you can see that contrasting of the seething brains and the shaping fantasies against the cool reason. Cool as in not boiling. So what he's saying about the people who fall in love and the crazy people is that their brains are always creating new visions. And as soon as he has this idea, then it turns philosophical. And it really gives Shakespeare a way to bring together all the themes of the play. He says, the lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. It sounds like a little bit of a digression. Like as soon as he thought of this idea, he turns and has a little bit of a monologue. Because now Shakespeare's adding another idea. So it's not just the crazy person and the person in love. It's also the poet, as in the writer, as in Shakespeare. How you like your meta now? He says they are of imagination all compact. Compact means composed of or made up of. So all three of those kinds of people are made up of imagination. He says, one sees more devils than vast hell can hold. That is the madman. So a crazy person sees visions of devils. The lover, all as frantic, sees Helen's beauty in a brow of Egypt. The all here means exactly or just. So the lover is just exactly as frantic as the crazy person is. And why? Because the lover sees Helen's beauty, Helen being Helen of Troy, the most beautiful woman ever, though there's also a nice tie-in with Helena here. He sees the most beautiful person in the world in a brow of Egypt. Brow can be the literal brows, but here it's probably face or appearance. And what's this deal with Egypt? Well, again, it's old-timey racial ideas of beauty. Sorry. And this goes back to the idea that gypsies were originally thought to be from Egypt. That's why they're called gypsies, Egypt. So a brow of Egypt is a dark face, which in Shakespeare's time, unfortunately, would have meant an ugly face. But what he's saying is that someone who's in love sees an ugly person and imagines them to be the most beautiful person who ever lived. This is something they've been talking about throughout the play. Remember early in the play when Helena talked about things base and vile, holding no quantity, love can transpose to form and dignity? That those ugly things can be transposed, or in other words, transformed by love into something beautiful? Well, it's the same idea here. And then he goes on to the third person, the poet. The poet's eye, in a fine frenzy rolling, doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. This is an incredible passage, and it's not surprising that Shakespeare, when he's writing about writers, gets really specific. So it's not the poet, it's the poet's eye. Again, this is all about seeing and eyes. It's rolling in a fine frenzy. Rolling here like the way your eyeballs roll from one side to another when they look all over the place. But he says it's happening in a fine frenzy. So you get the alliteration of fine and frenzy. But there's also a kind of oxymoron here. A fine, a beautiful frenzy, a madness. So that eye glances from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. So it scans the entire landscape. It sees the heavenly things and the earthly things. And he says... As imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown. That's a beautiful verb, bodies forth. You don't usually use body as a verb, but Shakespeare does here. Almost like giving birth, making something unsolid into a solid body. And that's what imagination does. It's like a factory for turning nothing into something. So the imagination turns out the forms of things unknown. The forms being like the images, the things that appear in the brain. And these things are unknown. Nobody's thought of them before. So the poet's brain puts that out. And then the poet's pen turns them to shapes. So he takes those forms, those images, and makes them into real solid shapes. And maybe the most tangible form of those shapes is the letters and the words that the pen is writing down. And the end result is that it gives to airy nothing, a local habitation, and a name. 
That's a great description of nothing, airy, as being full of air. So it gives to that nothing a local habitation. This is a beautiful phrase. It's an incredibly strong word choice. It's literally a place to live, as though the ideas were homeless, and the writer, by writing them down, gives them a home on the piece of paper. Local as in location, and habitation as in inhabit. And it gives them a name, a name in those words. It's always cool to see Shakespeare writing about the idea of writing because he gives it these very solid ideas. He wants to communicate what it feels like to him to pluck these ideas out of the air and set them down into the real world. So those are the three kinds of people who are based on imagination. And now Theseus is going to go on to talk about the idea of imagination itself. He says, Such tricks hath strong imagination that if it would but apprehend some joy, it comprehends some bringer of that joy. So strong imagination has such tricks that if it would but apprehend some joy, the wood here means wants to. If it wants to apprehend, which is that idea of imagining something abstractly from nothing, it comprehends some bringer of that joy. And comprehending, again, is that kind of imagining logically or imagining in a real-world way. So you see that contrast of apprehend and comprehend again. And what is it comprehending? A bringer of that joy. The bringer need not necessarily be a real person, but it's a solid source of joy. And this is the power of imagination. Imagination can make things true in the real world. And then he restates that in clearer language. He says, Or in the night, imagining some fear? How easy is a bush supposed to bear? And this is something that almost everyone immediately gets viscerally. Anyone who's been in the woods at night, or even just in their bedroom at night, when you imagine some fear, some abstract fear, how easy, how easily is a bush supposed, in other words, believed to be or imagined to be a bear? So imagination has the ability to turn this shadowy bush into a terrifying bear. And notice he chooses two short B words, because that's the contrast, bush and bear. Keep in mind also that in Shakespeare's time, fear and bear would have rhymed. And even though this isn't a rhyming speech, this rhyming couplet at the end is a nice way to kind of tie up this digression into the idea of imagination. And the big sort of takeaway from this is the idea that imagination is so powerful, whether it be the imagination of a crazy person or a writer, or importantly for this play, someone who's in love, it's so strong that it can make your ideas real. It's imagination as magic, essentially. But there is something in the end pretty condescending about this speech, too, from the point of the character. Theseus is saying, well, this is the kind of thing lovers do all the time. They're always imagining these impossible things. They must have imagined all this fairy stuff they told us about. But Hippolyta disagrees with him. She says, but all the story of the knight told over and all their minds transfigured so together more witnesseth than fancies images and grows to something of great constancy, but howsoever strange and admirable. So all the story of the night told over, in other words, retold by the lovers many times, and all their minds transfigured so together, an incredibly important word transfigured, like transformed or translated. So all of the lovers' minds were transformed so together. They were all changed in the same way at the same time, specifically to resolve this disagreement over the marriage of Hermia. And she's saying that that storytelling and the mind changing more witnesseth. Witnesseth means testifies like a witness. It testifies more than fancies images. Fancy meaning imagination, especially the kind of imagination that a lover creates. So their stories and their change of heart is more than imagination. And it's not an accident that she says images as in imagination. And she says it grows to something of great constancy, meaning consistency or uniformity, like they all agree. This doesn't sound like imagination to her. But she says, howsoever, meaning in any case, or no matter how true that may be, it's strange and it's admirable. Admirable not like I admire you very much for all your charitable work, but admirable as in amazing or astonishing. And notice how Shakespeare wraps up this section by bringing back a word, because her first phrase was, tis strange, and here it ends with strange and admirable. So it wraps up this little unit, which is really a standalone kind of jewel here. 
and right on time in come the newly married lovers. And Theseus announces them. He says, here come the lovers full of joy and mirth. Mirth is merrymaking or joking. It's kind of similar to joy, but a little earthier. And echoing on his word of joy and mirth, he says, joy, gentle friends. Gentle can mean kind or even noble. And he's saying joy maybe as an imperative here, like you should be joyful or may you have joy. And he goes on to repeat it one more time. He says, joy and fresh days of love accompany your hearts. Fresh here meaning new or even blooming like a young flower. So he's wishing them this joy and days of love to accompany their hearts, to go with their hearts on their journey together. But Lysander talks back. In fact, he cuts him off mid-line. He says, more than to us, wait in your royal walks, your board, your bed. So more than to us means even more joy and love than you've wished to us. May that wait in your royal walks. In other words, may it await you in your walks, which means your garden pathways, your board, which is your dinner table, your bed. So Theseus has wished them joy, and Lysander has wished Theseus back even more joy than the joy you wished to us. Okay, pleasantries exchanged. And now Theseus really gets to the point and what's going to drive the last act of this play. He says, come now, what masks, what dances shall we have to wear away this long age of three hours between our after supper and bedtime? So what masks shall we have? Masks are these kind of poetic skits. They were usually performed at court rather than at a theater. And they usually had these incredibly elaborate costumes and sets. Often they were allegories, but they tended to be shorter than plays, less complex, more about sort of showing off. So what masks, what dances shall we have to wear away, in other words, to pass, this long age of three hours? Age means time, but there's also a sense of like era, almost like it's an entire lifetime of three hours. It feels that long between our after supper, after supper being a light course that ends a big festive meal, sort of like dessert, and bedtime. So they have three hours to kill before they can go to sleep. And remember, at least officially in this time, you weren't allowed to sleep with your husband or wife until you got married. So these people are all pretty excited about going to bed tonight. So let's get this time passed out of the way. And Theseus says, where is our usual manager of mirth? Mirth again being merrymaking or joking around or fun. I also like that double M of manager of mirth. What revels are in hand? Revels are courtly entertainment or festivities, but remember the fairies used the same term to describe their dances and celebrations and entertainments. What revels are in hand? In hand here means under consideration or at our disposal to use. What do we have as an option for our entertainments? Is there no play to ease the anguish of a torturing hour? There's a little bit of irony here. It's not really anguish to wait, it's just annoying. A torturing hour. Hour here again like age, meaning time. And it's torturing because they have to pass the time. And he says, call Philostrate. Presumably this servant Philostrate, who we saw at the beginning of the play, is his manager of mirth. And Philostrate, hearing his name, jumps right into the line and says, Here, mighty Theseus. And Theseus says, Say, what abridgment have you for this evening? What mask? What music? Abridgment means an entertainment, but literally like an abridged book, it means a way to pass or shorten the time. What mask and music? Again, those are those poetic skits. How shall we beguile the lazy time if not with some delight? He's really going after time here. How shall we beguile? Beguile means to charm away or sort of pass pleasantly. The lazy time. That's a really cool choice of adjective. It means idle, as though the time is just sitting around doing nothing. So what better way do we have to spend this time if not with some delight, some delightful activity? And Philostrate says, there is a brief how many sports are ripe. And presumably when he says there, he gives the list to Theseus, which he's about to read. So there's a brief. A brief here means like a short list or a summary, almost like a legal brief. How many sports are ripe? Sports as in entertainments. And ripe here means ready to go, like a fruit that's ready to be picked. So apparently there are some entertainments waiting for him, as we know. And Philostrate says, make choice of which your highness will see first. So you choose which you want to see first. And Theseus starts to read. He says, The battle with the centaurs to be sung by an Athenian eunuch to the harp. 
So what's the battle with the centaurs? It sounds awesome, right? Well, this is another Greek myth that you will not be surprised to hear is mentioned in Ovid's Metamorphoses. And this is a myth that's specifically connected to Theseus. It's said at the wedding of Theseus's friend Pirithous, who's the king of Thessaly. And a bunch of centaurs at the wedding get drunk, as centaurs are wont to do, and they try to carry away all the women. So that's the battle with the centaurs. And he says it's to be sung by an Athenian eunuch to the harp. Eunuchs are, as you may know, castrated men. This is so that their voice remain as high as they were when they were kids. And it's sung to the harp. In other words, it's accompanied by the harp. So I guess it's like a ballad sung by a eunuch. That does not sound great, you know, centaurs notwithstanding. And Theseus is similarly nonplussed. He says, we'll none of that, as in we don't want to have any of that. Why? Because he says, that have I told my love in glory of my kinsman Hercules. So he's already told this story to his love, to Hippolyta, in glory of, in other words, to glorify his kinsman Hercules. Kinsman means relative. I don't usually think of those two characters as relatives, but sure. And in fact, Hercules isn't even originally in this myth. But Shakespeare makes him one of the heroes of the fight against the centaurs because he can, I guess. Anyway, he's saying that Hippolyta's already seen that one because he told her about it. So he goes on to the next one. He says, The riot of the tipsy Bacchanals tearing the Thracian singer in their rage. So who are the Bacchanals, also known as the Bacchants or the Bacchae? These are these sort of drunken female followers of Dionysus who sort of dance in a frenzy to him when they get drunk. That's why they're tipsy Bacchanals. And he says they're tearing the Thracian singer in their rage. You will not be shocked to hear that this is another reference to Ovid's Metamorphoses. The Thracian singer is Orpheus, the legendary musician. And the way he died is that he was torn to death by these Bacchants. And his head and lyre go floating down the river after he's torn to pieces, but they're still singing and playing. It's a kind of awesome image. So this is another option for a play. You get to see these Bacchanals acting out. But Theseus also doesn't want to see this one. He says, that is an old device, and it was played when I from Thebes came last a conqueror. He's getting a little short-tempered. It's an old device. Device here means like a show or a performance, something that is devised. And not only is it old, it was played. It was played already. He's seen this play before. When? When I from Thebes came last a conqueror. When I came most recently as a conqueror from Thebes. So seen it already. And he goes on to the next one. The thrice three muses mourning for the death of learning, late deceased in beggary. Thrice three just means three times three, in other words, nine. And it's the muses, the nine muses. So as you may know, in Greek mythology, these are these nine goddesses who inspire all of human literature and arts and sciences. And in this, what sounds like a really not funny play, the muses are in mourning for the death of learning. Oh, it's an allegory. Great. Those are always good. Late deceased in beggary. Late here means recently deceased in beggary in a state of extreme poverty. So basically what this play is saying is that learning is so impoverished that it dies. And the muses who inspire all of that learning are mourning for it. Oh, I've seen some plays like that. Not good. And Theseus agrees with me. He says, that is some satire, keen and critical, not sorting with a nuptial ceremony. So it's a satire of writing and learning. It's keen and critical. Keen literally means sharp, like the edge of a knife or biting, like a satire is. Not sorting with. Sorting with means appropriate for a nuptial ceremony. In other words, a wedding ceremony. You don't want to see satire when you're celebrating your wedding after you've eaten dinner and you're about to go to bed with the person you're in love with. And finally, he gets to the last option, which is the one that concerns us in this play. A tedious, brief scene of young Pyramus and his love Thisbe. Very tragical mirth. So tedious means long and slow, but in the next adjective, it's brief. Okay, how can something be tedious brief? And it ends with a very tragical mirth. Mirth, remember, means merriment or joking. How can joking be tragical? And Theseus immediately notices that. He says, merry and tragical? Tedious and brief? That is hot ice and wondrous strange snow. So he makes up an oxymoron of his own. This tragical mirth and tedious briefness, that's the same thing as hot ice. And it's wondrous strange snow. Wondrous meaning wondrously or amazingly strange snow. 
That last one isn't really an oxymoron, but it matches well with the hot ice idea. And he's pretty amazed by this. He says, how shall we find the concord of this discord? You can hear the contrast of concord and discord. Concord means harmony and discord means dissonance or any kind of disagreement. So how are we going to make this nonsense make sense? So he may or may not care about Pyramus and Thisbe, but at the very least, he's very interested by this description. But Philostrate is sort of dreading this. He says, a play there is, my lord, some ten words long, which is as brief as I have known a play. But by ten words, my lord, it is too long, which makes it tedious. So he actually explains how something can be tedious brief. He says, yeah, there's a play, and it's only about ten words long. It's a very short play, which is as brief as I have known a play. I've never known a play that, that was that short. But, he says, it's too long by ten words. Like he wishes it was zero words long, which makes it tedious. That's why it's so tedious and brief at the same time. He goes on, for in all the play, there is not one word apt, one player fitted. So in the whole play, there's not one apt word. Apt meaning fitting or plausible for the character. There isn't one player fitted, like one actor who's appropriately cast for their part. It is that tedious. And then he has to explain the tragical mirth part. So he says, And tragical, my lord, it is, for Pyramus therein doth kill himself, which, when I saw rehearsed, I must confess, made mine eyes water. So therein, in the play, Pyramus does kill himself. And when he saw it rehearsed, because Philostrate watched all these to get this list ready, I must confess, it made mine eyes water. Okay, interesting. But he goes on, But more merry tears, the passion of loud laughter never shed. So he didn't cry in sadness, he cried these merry tears. In other words, hilarious, mirthing tears. So funnier tears than that? The passion of loud laughter, a passion as in an eruption of feelings. This feeling of loud laughter has never shed funnier tears than the ones I did when I watched this play. And you also get that double L of loud laughter. So that's why it's tragical mirth. It's a tragedy, but he laughed at it. And Theseus is actually really intrigued by this. He says, what are they that do play it? So who are the people who act this? And Philostrate says, hard-handed men that work in Athens here, which never labored in their minds till now, and now have toiled their unbreathed memories with this same play against your nuptial. So the actors are hard-handed men. I guess they're hard-handed because they do all the manual labor. They work in Athens here, but they've never labored in their minds. In other words, they've never used their brains as opposed to using their hands until now, until this very moment. So this is the first time they ever used their minds. And now he says they've toiled their unbreathed memories. Toiled here means tired out with labor. Their unbreathed memories. Breathed means exercised because you work up heavy breathing with the work. And he's saying that these are unbreathed memories because they've never been exercised until now. But now that they're working, they're exhausted, they're toiled with this same play against your nuptial. Against here means something very different from how we use it. It means in advance of or in preparation for. So he's giving a huge disclaimer on this play. He's saying these guys are not good actors. They may not remember all their lines. But maybe Theseus is a little touched by the fact that they would work on this just for his wedding. And he says, and we will hear it. You'll sometimes see that Elizabethans or Jacobeans would refer to hearing a play as opposed to seeing it because it was so language-based. And he says, well, we're going to watch this play. We're going to listen to this play. And Philostrate is horrified. You see, he doesn't even let Theseus finish his verse line. He says, no, my noble lord, it is not for you. Like, this really isn't appropriate for you to see. You want something of a higher level. He says, I have heard it over, and it is nothing. Nothing in the world, unless you can find sport in their intents, extremely stretched and conned with cruel pain to do you service. He says, I've heard it over. In other words, he's seen it played out. And it is nothing. Like, there's nothing there, nothing in the world, unless you can find sport in their intents. So it's not entertaining unless you can find sport, entertainment, in their intents, which probably refers to their intentions, you know, their ambitions for the play. It may also refer to the parts that they intended to memorize, but that's more of a stretch. And Philostrate says that their intents have been extremely stretched, which is a beautiful image, and conned with cruel pain. Conned, not in our modern sense of cheated, but as in memorized. With cruel pain. 
pain as an effort, but there's something very violent about this, as though their brains were violated by having to memorize these lines. And they did all of this to do you service. And then Theseus interrupts him and says again, I will hear that play, for never anything can be amiss when simpleness and duty tender it. So even though Philostrate warns him this is going to be miserable, they're not used to this, Theseus says, no, I want to hear it. Why? Because never anything, in other words, nothing ever, can be amiss, can be wrong or deficient, when simpleness and duty tender it. Simpleness meaning like innocence or unpretentiousness. And duty, the kind of duty that a subject owes to their ruler, tender it. Tender meaning offer or present it. So they may suck, but the fact that they present it to him with love and honesty means that it should be good to him. And he tells Philostrate, go, bring them in which I imagine Philostrate isn't particularly happy about. And he turns to the rest and says, and take your places, ladies. So everybody sit down. We're going to see this play. And then Hippolyta says something which kind of fascinates me. She says, I love not to see wretchedness o'ercharged and duty in his service perishing. So wretchedness means simple or poor people. And o'ercharged means like overtaxed or overburdened, almost like a horse that's carrying too much weight. So she doesn't like to see people like that made fun of. And duty, in other words, dutiful service or even a dutiful person, in his service perishing, literally dying in their desire to serve, to do their duty. So whereas Theseus has said simpleness and duty, she says wretchedness and duty. She doesn't want to see this. You know, thank you. She finds all this kind of gross. And I think as we go along in the scene, you may too. Rich people making fun of poor people. That's always fun on stage. But Theseus isn't having any of this. He says, why, gentle sweet, you shall see no such thing. Yeah, this isn't going to be like that. And Hippolyta says, he says that they can do nothing in this kind. This kind probably means something like business, in this case, the business of acting. Remember, Philostrate just called it nothing? And she says, well, they can do nothing in this business of acting. They're totally incompetent. How is this going to be good? And Theseus says, the kind are we to give them thanks for nothing. And it's a pun and kind of a bad pun, because she just said they can do nothing in this kind. And Theseus said, the kind are we. Like, it's even kinder of us then, different sense of kind, to give them thanks for nothing. If they give us nothing in this play, we're thanking them for that. We must be really nice. And he says, our sport shall be to take what they mistake. So our sport, our entertainment, shall be to take, in other words, to understand what they mistake, what they misunderstand, or what they do wrongly. It's another one of these puns on take and mistake. So we're going to get all the things they don't get. And he says, what poor duty cannot do, noble respect takes it in might, not merit. So whatever it is that the poor, dutiful person can't do, noble respect, in other words, the regard or the favor of noble people like us, takes it in might, not merit, which means it understands their strong intentions, not their weak results. You get that contrast of might and merit, especially those two M sounds. And you see also the way that he contrasts poor duty and noble respect. It's a real antithesis. So we appreciate that they tried hard, even if they're not very good at it. He goes on, where I have come, great clerks have purposed to greet me with premeditated welcomes, where I have seen them shiver and look pale, make periods in the midst of sentences, throttle their practiced accent in their fears, and in conclusion dumbly have broke off, not paying me a welcome. So he's saying it's not just the poor people. Where I have come, when I've come to a place, great clerks, which means scholars or learned people, have purposed, which means they intended or they attempted, to greet me with premeditated welcomes. So these were welcomes that were thought out or planned in advance or maybe even written down and memorized. So they wanted to give me this long welcome. But instead, he says, I have seen them shiver and look pale, make periods in the midst of sentences. Periods like pauses, almost like their punctuation is in the wrong place. So they pause right in the middle of a sentence throttle their practiced accent in their fears throttle means to literally choke off their practiced accent not like an italian accent but their way of speaking or their speech so they were talking but it was as though their fears choked off their speech 
and in conclusion, dumbly have broke off. Not dumb as in stupid, but as in silently. So they just stopped speaking, not paying me a welcome, not even giving or offering me that welcome they were intending to. So even these really smart people who make all these great plans, they sometimes get nervous around important people like us, and they just stop talking. And he says, trust me, sweet, out of this silence yet I picked a welcome, and in the modesty of fearful duty, I read as much as from the rattling tongue of saucy and audacious eloquence. So he's telling her to trust him that out of this silence, these people who couldn't even speak in his presence, yet I picked a welcome. I still made out or detected the welcome in their silence. And in the modesty of fearful duty, modesty being like propriety or protocol. So in that dutiful person who's afraid and silent, I read as much, in other words, as much as I do from the rattling tongue of saucy and audacious eloquence. You can really hear the rattling tongue. Someone will just go on and on. The tongue of saucy, which means presumptuous or impudent, and audacious eloquence. Audacious meaning bold, but there's a real negative sense, as though it's too bold. So the contrast is between quiet, fearful duty and saucy, audacious eloquence. So he's saying the quiet version was even better to him than the noisy version. And he ties it up. Love, therefore, and tongue-tied simplicity in least speak most to my capacity. So he's saying that, therefore, love and tongue-tied simplicity, simplicity again being like innocence or unpretentiousness, and he describes it as tongue-tied, so silent. So love and simplicity in least speak most. Another antithesis. Because they speak the least, he says, they speak the most to him, to my capacity. Capacity just means his ability to understand. So he's reassuring her that their good intentions are going to be enough for him, and he's not going to make fun of them. But I don't know. I think her fears are validated, as we will see. And back comes Philostrate with the performers, and he says, So please your grace, the prologue is addressed. So, so please, as in, if it may please your grace. The prologue, the prologue being the person who comes out before a play to kind of preview the plot, is addressed. It means he's ready to speak or act. And Theseus is excited. He says, let him approach. And in comes the prologue, who in most productions is played by Peter Quince, who's kind of the nominal head of the company. And the prologue says, if we offend... It is with our goodwill. Well, that seems backwards. It's their goodwill to offend? Okay, he goes on. That you should think we come not to offend, but with goodwill. It's kind of a repetition. We're only coming to offend with our goodwill. And he goes on. To show our simple skill, that is the true beginning of our end. Beginning of our end is a nice little pun. It means the motivation behind what we intend to do. But there's also that kind of double meaning of, well, this is the beginning of the end for us. He goes on. Consider, then, we come, but in despite. In despite here means, like, to spite you. Again, he's saying things that should be wildly offensive to the people listening. He goes on. We do not come as minding to content you. Our true intent is. Okay, now this is just starting to sound like nonsense. Minding means intending or having in mind to content you, to make you content. Our true intent is. Intent meaning our intention or our goal. And you see also that contrast of content and intent. And he goes on, all for your delight, we are not here. Okay, so he's saying they're not here for the delight of the nobles. And he keeps going, that you should here repent you, the actors are at hand. And by their show, you shall know all that you are like to know. So that you should here repent you, like repent sins, the actors are at hand. In other words, they're here nearby. And by their show, by their display or by their performance, you shall know all that you are like to know. Like meaning likely to know. Okay, what is this speech about? Well, we're going to hear in a second from Theseus about what the problem is, but we can go through it on our own. The punctuation is all over the place. So Shakespeare has managed to write an entire prologue speech where just moving around the punctuation slightly gives the sentences all new meaning. So maybe the correct way to read it would be, if we offend, it is with our goodwill that you should think we come not to offend. Oh, that's much more reasonable. And then if you move the punctuation around again, he says, but with goodwill to show our simple skill. Oh, our goodwill is just to show that we're simple and skilled. That is the true beginning of our end. Oh, that's what we're here to do. Consider then, we come. Oh, we're here, we've arrived. But in despite, we do not come. You know, we're not here to spite you. He goes on, 
as minding to content you, our true intent is all for your delight. Oh yeah, that makes much more sense. Since we want to content you, our true intent is just to delight you. And then he would go on, we are not here that you should here repent you. Yeah, that makes much more sense. We're not here to make you repent. That would be crazy. And then he finishes, the actors are at hand and by their show, you shall know all that you are like to know. So yeah, if you read it with that punctuation, it would be a not very good, but at least pleasant prologue. But here it sounds more like he's trying to offend everyone in the room. So either because he's nervous or because he wrote in the punctuation wrong, he reads it completely insane. And as soon as he leaves, everyone in the room turns to each other and they start making fun of him. And this is where the full, like, Mystery Science Theater 3000 part kicks in. A lot of this stuff is usually cut in production, in part because some of the jokes are old, in part because they were never very funny to begin with, and in part because it's just mean. Like, they're heckling these people while they're doing the play in front of them. So Theseus says, This fellow doth not stand upon points. So stand upon points usually means, like, observe punctuation. Points are the periods. But it can also mean he doesn't get subtle things in the writing. And Lysander chimes in, he says, He hath rid his prologue like a rough colt. He knows not the stop. So the images of someone riding a rough colt, which just means like a young, untrained horse. So rid here means rode, or in this case, something more like managed as he spoke it. And it's a great image. You can really picture him trying to stay astride those words as they run away from him. He knows not the stop. And the word stop here can mean either the period at the end of a sentence, or it can also mean how to stop a horse that's running all over the place. And Lysander concludes, A good moral, my lord, it is not enough to speak, but to speak true. Yeah, because if you say the same words in the same order, it can mean totally different things. And Hippolyta, who was sort of creeped out by this whole idea, is just surprised. She says, Indeed, he hath played on this prologue like a child on a recorder, a sound, but not in government. So whereas Lysander's image was of someone riding an out-of-control horse, Hippolyta's image is of a child playing a recorder. And I assume you've all heard this if you've been to a terrible kindergarten music class. He makes a sound. You can just get a sound by blowing on a recorder, but not in government. Not like the Congress, but it just means governing, like control, because you govern the holes on a recorder, which makes it play different notes, musical notes, unlike the just crazy sound that comes out from blowing on it. And there's also another pun in here you can't necessarily see. When Lysander said he knows not the stop, stop is also the name for a hole on a recorder. So it's another little pun. And Theseus wants to have the last word. He says, his speech was like a tangled chain, nothing impaired, but all disordered. So if you've ever gotten like the chain of a necklace tangled up, you know how long it takes to untangle it. But technically nothing in the chain is broken. So nothing impaired, nothing harmed or broken, but all disordered. So that's what the speech was like for Theseus. The words were all still there, but they were so tangled that it was impossible to understand. So they've had a little bit of fun. And then Theseus turns back to the actors and says, who is next? And in they come, usually in ridiculous costumes. And then the prologue, or Quince, or whoever spoke that prologue, speaks again when they all come out. He says, Gentles, perchance you wonder at this show. So gentles, in other words, noble people. Perchance, perhaps, maybe, you wonder at this show. You're amazed or astonished at this show. Maybe the show of all the characters out on stage. But wonder on, till truth make all things plain. Plain as in clear or honest. This man is Pyramus, if you would know. Yeah, they probably would know. As in, they want to know. This beauteous lady, Thisbe is certain, meaning for certain, but the pronunciation is really archaic, both to make it rhyme and to scan right and to fit into that style. So he's presenting the characters one by one. This man with lime and rough cast doth present wall, that vile wall which did these lovers sunder. So remember, rough cast is that kind of slurry you use to plaster over the walls and usually made it out of lime that you mixed with sand or these little pebbles. And that's what they've covered this poor actor in. He doth present, in other words, plays the part of wall, that vile wall which did these lovers sunder, sunder meaning separate or keep apart. And through walls chink, poor souls, they are content to whisper 
At the witch, let no man wonder. So they're whispering through the hole in the wall. At the witch, let no man wonder. And this is hearkening back to the beginning of his speech where he says, you wonder at this show. Well, he says, no one should be amazed at this. And he goes on to the next actor. He says, this man with lantern, dog, and bush of thorn presenteth moonshine. For if you will know, by moonshine do these lovers think no scorn to meet at Ninus's tomb. There, there to woo. Oh, so instead of opening the window, they went with the guy dressed as moonshine idea. So remember, he's holding the lantern to make the light. And then this dog and thorn bush are those sort of traditional accompaniments of the man in the moon. So this is all to indicate that he is the moonshine. He presenteth moonshine. In other words, he plays the part of moonshine. For, if you will know, by moonshine did these lovers think no scorn. Think no scorn means they didn't think it was foolish to meet at Ninus's tomb. Remember, Ninus is that Assyrian founder of Nineveh, because this is supposed to take place in Babylon. Uh, close enough. They're there to woo, because that's what they were going to woo, to court each other. You should also know, by the way, that no and woo used to rhyme. So it's a much better rhyme then than it would be now. And he introduces the next one. He says, This grisly beast, which lion hight by name, the trusty Thisbe coming first by night did scare away, or rather did affright. So this grisly beast, grisly meaning menacing, and then in parentheses, which lion hight by name, hight means is called, but again, that's another archaic term. Shakespeare is definitely going for an older, sort of creakier style in this writing here. It's hard for writers to write as incompetent writers, but Shakespeare's pretty good at it. So this grisly beast scared away the trusty Thisbe when she came first by night. And then he revises that scare away, he says, or rather did affright. He just uses a new word. It means the same thing. And as she fled, her mantle she did fall, which lion vile with bloody mouth did stain. So as she fled from being scared away, her mantle she did fall, mantle meaning cloak, and fall here means she let it fall. She dropped it. Which lion vile, so now we have a vile lion and a vile wall, with bloody mouth did stain. So the whole point is that the lion's mouth was already bloody from some kill, and it stained her mantle, her cloak, with that blood. Anon comes Pyramus, sweet youth and tall, and finds his trusty Thisbe's mantle slain. So Anon, soon after, comes Pyramus, sweet youth and tall, and finds his trusty Thisbe's mantle slain. Can the mantle be slain? Can you kill a cloak? I don't think so, but again, bad poetry. And notice how he keeps describing her as trusty Thisbe, two words which kind of sound alike, but not so alike as to actually be good. And then he says, in one of my favorite lines ever, whereat with blade, with bloody, blameful blade, he bravely broached his boiling bloody breast. I think that is the greatest alliteration line any writer has ever written. That is nine B sounds in a row. So whereat, which means like whereupon, upon finding that mantle, with blade, with bloody, blameful blade, blameful is a way to mean shameful, not necessarily something that would describe a sword, but okay. He bravely broached. Bravely here not just meaning our sense of bravely, but like showily or impressively. Broached, as in pierced, his boiling bloody breast. It's all over the top in the extreme. But alliteration used the wrong way is one of the great signs of a terrible poet. You can see that even in this play where Shakespeare is showing off his poetry, he uses alliteration only when he wants to really get the thing going. But if you use it too much, then you get lines like this. And Thisbe, tarrying in mulberry shade, his dagger drew and died. Tarrying means staying or remaining in the shade of a mulberry tree. His dagger drew, maybe Pyramus's dagger drew, and died. You can see why this is very much kind of the bizarro Romeo and Juliet. It has the same ending, but it's all so over the top. Because again, Shakespeare was either writing this at the same time as Romeo and Juliet, or had just written it or was just about to write it. So whereas their suicides are tragic and beautiful, here they are completely over the top and ridiculous. You also get some more ridiculous alliteration right at the end. His dagger drew and died. So he's introduced all the characters, he's introduced the whole plot, and then he concludes, For all the rest, let lion, moonshine, wall, and lovers twain at large discourse, while here they do remain. So for all the rest, for everything else in this, 
Let lion, moonshine, wall, and lovers twain, twain meaning two, let the two lovers, at large discourse. At large as in at length, like a greater length, discourse, meaning relate or tell the story, while here they do remain. So he's just told most of the story, which is one of the things prologues are for, though they don't usually go into that much detail. And there's a tradition that sometimes when this is performed, the actors will act it out along with him. They'll do what's called a dumb show. If you remember in the play within a play in Hamlet, a prologue comes out to describe what happens in the story, the actors act it out silently, and then they act out the whole play with the talking. So sometimes you'll see them actually acting out the boiling bloody breast stuff as the prologue is talking. And that can be sort of the first wave of hilarity in this scene. And you can see that the first time the prologue disrupts that ABAB rhyme scheme is at the end there with that rhyming couplet. That's how you know the speech is over. And now that Theseus knows it's over, he has another comment to get in. He says, I wonder if the lion be to speak, which is kind of a fun non sequitur, actually. Because the prologue has just said the lovers are going to discourse at large, but he's also said that the lion and the moonshine and the wall are going to discourse at large. And in fact, they will. They're going to talk. And Theseus, for one, is pretty excited to hear that lion talk. But Demetrius has a nice little jab. He says, no wonder, my lord, one lion may when many asses do. So like there's nothing amazing about a lion talking because many asses, in other words, idiots do. You know, in the real world, it's a nice little bit of social commentary in the midst of being a jerk. There's also that nice tie-in with the donkey head from earlier in the play. But instead of the lion talking, the first character to speak, of course, is the wall. Because that's what you want to kick your play off with, a talking wall. And the wall is played by Snout, and he comes out and he starts speaking in a new rhyme scheme for the play, which is that regular A-A-B-B rhyme. In this same interlude, it doth befall that I, one Snout by name, present a wall. So in this same interlude, interlude meaning like a play or a short performance, it doth befall, it's come to pass, or it's happened, that I, one Snout by name, because remember they were afraid people were going to think they were really the thing, so he's naming himself, I present a wall. In other words, I play the part of a wall. So it's like everybody gets a little prologue for themselves. And such a wall, as I would have you think, that had in it a crannied hole or chink, through which the lovers, Pyramus and Thisbe, did whisper often, very secretly. So the wall has in it a crannied hole, crannied meaning split or cracked open, or chink, through which the lovers, Pyramus and Thisbe, did whisper often, very secretly. So another part of this terrible writing is that the rhymes are also terrible, because Thisbe and secretly do not even like slightly rhyme. This loam, this rough cast, and this stone doth show that I am that same wall. So this loam, which is this kind of soil that you make out of silt or sand and you use it to fill in walls, or you mix it with straw and use it to build walls, and this rough cast, which you remember is like that kind of plaster slurry, and this stone does show that I am that same wall. So it's as though he gets to point to all of the objects on him that make him the wall. So he has a little loam on him, he has a little rough cast, maybe he's holding one of the stones, maybe it's tied around his neck, I don't know. They all show you that I'm the wall, because they're really concerned that people aren't going to get that he's playing a wall. And then, the truth is so. I love that cute little line. The truth is so. Yeah, the truth is so. Okay. And this, the cranny is, right and sinister, through which the fearful lovers are to whisper. So this is the cranny, right and sinister. Sinister being another way to say left. So on the right side and the left side, through which the fearful lovers are to whisper. That is another, even more terrible rhyme. Sinister and whisper? So he's laid out exactly who he is, he's laid out what the cranny is, and there's a lot of sort of fun ways for actors to play around with this. Some of them just like hold up their fingers. I've seen people represent it with their two ears. There's some very silly ways to do this. And Theseus is sort of delighted. He turns to the rest of them and says, Would you desire lime and hair to speak better? Hair being cow hair, which was left over from tanning hides, and they use that to mix into the loam to make walls. So he's saying, can you imagine those objects talking better than that? And Demetrius has another quick reply. He says, it is the wittiest partition that ever I heard discourse, my lord. Another smart guy. Partition just being another word for wall. But I love how that phrase sounds. Wittiest partition. 
And also there's another sense of partition as like a section of a speech or writing. But he's basically saying like, this is the smartest wall I've ever heard discourse. Speak, my lord. Because presumably he's heard zero other walls talk, but this is definitely the wittiest one. But Theseus quiets him down. He says, Pyramus draws near the wall. Silence. And in enters bottom as Pyramus. And he proceeds to act up a storm. He says, O grim-looked knight, O knight with hue so black, O knight whichever art when day is not, O knight, O knight, alack, alack, alack. So you can really hear the kind of over-the-top poetry of this, all the repetitions of O knight. Anytime you want to parody poetry, just start with the letter O and then object here. So he calls it grim-looked knight, which means like forbidding-looking. O knight with hue so black, hue meaning color. Yes, knight is definitely black-colored. O knight whichever art when day is not. Ever here means always. So night is always around when day isn't. This is what you might call obvious poetry. I almost get a sense that maybe he punched up his lines a little bit. Sometimes in production you'll see Quint standing to the side with a script, and after a while he just gives up because it's all being improvised. And then finally we get to these repetitions at the end. Oh night, oh night, alack, alack, alack. It just gives him a chance to emote more. Alack is just kind of an expression of dismay, like alas. And what is he upset at? I fear my Thisbe's promise is forgot. Because remember, Thisbe promised to meet him at the wall. And he goes on. And thou, O wall, O sweet, O lovely wall, that stands between her father's ground and mine. Thou wall, O wall, O sweet and lovely wall, show me thy chink to blink through with mine eye. More repetitions, more o's, more over the top. O wall, O sweet, O lovely wall. Not things you would necessarily call a wall. You would call your girlfriend that. It stands between her father's ground, in other words, her father's land and mine, because that's all that separates their two houses. Thou wall, O wall, O sweet and lovely wall. So the first time it was, O sweet, O lovely wall, and now it's, O sweet and lovely wall. He's repeating, but he's kind of screwing it up. And then this incredible sounding, terrible line. Show me thy chink to blink through with mine eye. So you get the terrible rhyme of chink and blink and mine and eye. Eye again is that archaic way of saying eyes. Again, this is all supposed to sound old and terrible, maybe based on the kind of bad plays that might have toured to Shakespeare's hometown when he was a kid. And when he asks the wall to show him the chink, show him the hole, there's all kinds of great bits you can do with this. Either he can just hold up his hand, which is pretty funny when a wall holds up its hand, and then there's all the sex stuff. Anytime you talk about a hole, this gives actors lots of chance to mess around. So sometimes the wall's hole is a different hole, if you know what I mean. And I'm sorry that you probably do. So he sees the hole and he says, thanks, courteous wall, which is a hilarious phrase because you don't usually thank walls for being courteous. Jove shield thee well for this. Jove being another name for Zeus, the king of the gods. So Jove shield, may Zeus protect you well for this. And then he looks through the chink in the wall. He says, but what see I? No Thisbe do I see. And you can really see him like laying out all the steps, super obvious. There's also that like attempt at poetry. What see I? No Thisbe do I see. That's switching around to the order of see I and I see. And when he doesn't see Thisbe, he freaks out. He says, oh, wicked wall through whom I see no bliss. Cursed be thy stones for thus deceiving me. So right before it was a sweet and lovely wall, but now it's a wicked wall. Through whom I see no bliss. He can't see Thisbe through the wall. So now it's wicked. And he says, cursed be thy stones for thus deceiving me. So he was just blessing the wall and now he's cursing it. And again, as with whole, there is another more sexual meaning for stones. And if you think productions of this play haven't joked about that particular meaning, well, you have another thing coming. I've seen productions where Pyramus straight up kicks him in the balls at this moment. And Theseus has to chime in. He says, the wall, methinks, being sensible should curse again. So methinks, it seems to me that the wall being sensible, you know, because it's able to sense things since it talks and is alive, it should curse again. It should curse back at him. And I don't know, maybe kick Pyramus in the stones. And then in this kind of amazing moment, Bottom breaks the fourth wall and he turns to Theseus and says, no, in truth, sir, he should not. And you'll notice all along, even though the Pyramus and Thisbe play is in verse, all the nobles are actually talking in prose because it's like contrast of the more formal language with that kind of joking around, talking with friends thing. And now when Bottom breaks out of the scene, he's talking in prose too. 
And he just wants to make sure Theseus isn't worried. He says, no, actually, he shouldn't curse again. Why? Because he says, deceiving me is Thisbe's cue. That's the line written into Thisbe's part script. And after that, Bottom says, she is to enter now, and I am to spy her through the wall. In other words, I'm going to see her through the wall when she enters. He's explaining this to Theseus as though Theseus has never seen a play before. You shall see it will fall pat as I told you. Fall pat means it'll happen or take place just exactly the way I told you. And as if on cue, in comes Thisbe, and Bottom says, yonder she comes, over there, she's coming. And in comes Flute, dressed as a lady, and she has an over-the-top speech of her own. She says, Oh, wall, full often hast thou heard my moans for parting my fair Pyramus and me. Oh, it's another oh, wall. So there's even a little bit of a laugh just in those first two words. Full often, in other words, very often, have you heard my moans. Why? For parting my fair Pyramus and me. Parting meaning separating or keeping apart. Though there's also kind of a sexual connotation to moans. And don't think that's going to let up in the next line either. My cherry lips have often kissed thy stones, thy stones with lime and hair knit up in thee. So my cherry lips, I think that is an image we've seen over and over again in this play, but now it's in a parody of itself, just meaning ripe and red-colored. They have often kissed thy stones. Again, could potentially be totally innocent, but there's going to be ball jokes here. And that's even more so when she mentions that the stones are with lime and hair knit up. In other words, combined. It's another gross sex joke. Great. Hairy balls. Every time someone tells you that Shakespeare is dignified, I would just ask you to show them this moment in this play. So there's a kind of fun contrast between the innocence of Thisbe's intent and the potential grossness of these words. And then Bottom returns to acting. He says, I see a voice. And by now this has become kind of a running joke in the play, this mismatching of senses. It was all over Bottom's big speech when he wakes up. He says, I see a voice. Not a thing you can do. Now will I to the chink to spy and I can hear my Thisbe's face. Now will I. In other words, now I will go. And after seeing a voice, now he says, I'm going to spy and I can hear my Thisbe's face. I'm going to see if I can hear my Thisbe's face. So before he saw a voice and now he's trying to hear a face. That is amazing writing. And Thisbe hears him and says, My love, thou art my love, I think. And keep in mind what's also going on here is that they're talking into the hole in the wall. So depending on what you've decided the hole is going to be in your wall, they are on very close terms with him now. They're talking through some part of his anatomy. And after Thisbe says, Thou art my love, I think, Pyramus picks up on that cue and says, Think what thou wilt, I am thy lover's grace. And like Lymander, am I trusty still? So think what thou wilt, think whatever you want, but know that I am thy lover's grace. In other words, I'm your gracious lover. This, by the way, sounds a lot like the language the lovers were using in the woods when they were actually swearing true love. So it's as though they're seeing a parody of their own mishaps in the woods here. It's another way of showing that the same language can mean very different things depending on the situation. If you look back on the things you've said to someone you were in love with, it may seem ridiculous to you now. So it's as though this could just as easily be a beautiful love play as it is a ridiculous parody of love. And then he makes another mythological reference. He says, like Lymander am I trusty still. Lymander, not a real thing. What he means to say is Leander, who was a lover who swam a very far distance every night to visit his love who was named Hero. He says, I am trusty still. In other words, trustworthy. You can trust me with your love. And Thisbe echoes his line. She says, and I, like Helen, till the fates me kill. So you're like Lymander? Well, I'm like Helen, his love. Actually, of course, she means to say Hero just as he meant to say Leander. And instead of saying Hero, who was a good lover, she picked Helen, not historically known as the trustiest of lovers. Helen of Troy, of course, famously betrayed her husband for another man. She says, I'll be like Helen till the fates me kill, until I'm killed by the fates, who are these three Greek goddesses who decide how long people live. And while they're on mythological figures, Pyramus has another one. Not Shaphalus to Procris was so true. So not even Shaphalus was so true, in other words, was so loyal to Procris. So two things that are not going to surprise you. Number one, Shaphalus and Procris are from Ovid's Metamorphoses. And two, that's not their names. Their real names are Cephalus and Procris. 
and they're two more tragic lovers from Greek mythology. In this case, he accidentally kills her, so I would not necessarily hold that up as an example of true love, as they do. Again, this is a parody of the way they're always mentioning these great figures of love in these plays, but these people mention the wrong names, and they pick the wrong lovers to compare themselves to. And Thisbe again echoes Pyramus and says, As Shaphilus to Procris, I to you. So in the same way that Shaphilus treated Procris, I will treat you, even though that would involve shooting in the head. So after all those very impressive and very incorrect mythological references, the passion is too much for them, and Pyramus cries out, Oh, kiss me through the whole of this vile wall! And they attempt to kiss through, God help us, whatever poor snout's hole is. And they apparently fail because Flutus Thisbe says, I kiss the walls whole, not your lips at all. And one thing you may actually notice in these lines is that they're all monosyllables. They're the simplest form of language, especially after all those fancy, incorrect mythological names. It makes it really slow down, which when you're trying to kiss through a quote-unquote hole could be super awkward. So when they fail to kiss, Bottom as Pyramus says, Wilt thou at Ninny's tomb meet me straightway? You knew they were going to screw this up somewhere in this play. Again, it isn't Ninus, it's Ninny. It's sort of a great callback to Idiot. And you can see Quince just sort of dying in the corner as they screw up this easy thing again. So he's asking her if she'll meet him at this tomb straightway, which means at once or right away. And Thisbe swears, Tide life, tide death, I come without delay. Tide is short for betide which means whatever happens or whatever befalls, whatever comes. So if it's life, if it's death that comes, I'm going to come without delay. So they're going to run out of their father's houses and meet somewhere else. I got to say, not only is this a parody of Romeo and Juliet, it's also sort of a parody of Hermia and Lysander, who we saw earlier in the show, escape from their parents' houses and meet somewhere else. But of course, when they did it, it was true love. And here it's ridiculous. But again, they're not so different, you and I. So after getting kissed through, Snout, playing the wall, has one last speech. He says... Thus have I, wall, my part discharged so, and being done, thus wall away doth go. So he says, I have my part discharged so. Discharged means performed, so in this way, and being done, thus wall away doth go. It's very nursery rhyme sort of poetry. Definitely sounds like an older kind of play. And you get the great stage direction of exit wall. And Theseus notices this immediately. He says, now is the wall down between the two neighbors. Like they didn't even have to go to Ninus's tomb because there's no wall anymore. You may see some other texts, by the way, use the word mural or mur, which is just an older way of saying wall. And Demetrius gets in on the mockery. He says, no remedy, my lord, when walls are so willful to hear without warning. No remedy, like there's nothing to be done when walls are so willful, in other words, determined, to hear without warning. And I think probably the warning here is warning the parents of the lovers that they're escaping. There's that old proverb, walls have ears, but usually they don't speak too. So how dare this wall that can hear and talk not tell the parents what's going on? There's also this kind of over-the-top fun alliteration of walls and willful and warning. He almost knows he's going too far. And then Hippolyta has one of my favorite lines in the play. She says, this is the silliest stuff that ever I heard. I'm like, yeah, I agree with you. This is silly. In fact, the play would be fine without it. But it's such an over-the-top crowd pleaser that you kind of have to do it. This is maybe another meta moment of Shakespeare commenting on how ridiculous this has gotten. She also may be making fun a little bit of Demetrius's alliteration with her silliest stuff. All of a second, in the middle of this ridiculous play, Theseus and Hippolyta have a back and forth that really harkens back to that discussion at the beginning of the scene about imagination, about apprehending and comprehending. Because when she says this is the silliest stuff she's ever heard, Theseus comes back, 
The best in this kind are but shadows, and the worst are no worse if imagination amend them. So he says the best in this kind, which probably refers to the profession of acting. So the best actors are but shadows. But here means that they're only shadows, or nothing more than shadows. Shadows, by the way, was a common term to refer to actors. Because after all, what do they do? They copy real people's actions, like their shadows do on the ground. And this starts to tie in a lot of the loose threads of this play. Because after all, what was Oberon? The king of shadows? Shadow is another way to say spirits or fairies. So it's comparing actors to magical beings. We're going to get this metaphor again at the end of the play. You'll see. By the way, earlier in the scene, Hippolyta had also referred to them as this kind. Anyway, he says the best in this kind, the best actors are but shadows. They're only shadows. And the worst, the worst actors, maybe the people we're seeing right now, are no worse than shadows if imagination amends them. Amend just means improve here. So both good actors and bad actors are using imagination. And both of them are just these shadows. So he's looking at this glass as half full, but she comes back with, it must be your imagination then, and not theirs. Like, you're going to have to imagine them to be good, because their imagination isn't enough to improve them. And Theseus knows she's probably right, but he says, if we imagine no worse of them than they of themselves, they may pass for excellent men. So he's saying we just have to think of them as well as they think of themselves, because they all think they're great actors. So this is a nice little side dialogue that really gets to the most important themes in the play in the middle of this constant ridiculousness. But more actors are coming on stage. He says, here come two noble beasts in, a man and a lion. So Snug comes on to play the lion, and Starveling comes on to play the moonshine. And Snug starts out with his speech. He says, you ladies, you whose gentle hearts do fear, the smallest monstrous mouse that creeps on floor may not perchance both quake and tremble here when Lion Ruff in wildest rage doth roar. Remember, they were going to write this disclaimer speech for the lion so that the ladies knew it wasn't a real lion, because apparently they're idiots? Well, this is the speech. And he says that the ladies whose hearts do fear the smallest monstrous mouse that creeps on floor. So if you're afraid of a tiny little mouse, although there's that nice oxymoron again, smallest monstrous mouse, this might be an echo of Bottom's monstrous little voice that he used in that first scene when they got together. But you also get that nice phrase of monstrous mouse which I think is a band, maybe? So if you're afraid of a tiny little mouse, he says, you may now perchance, in other words, perhaps, or maybe, both quake and tremble here, quake and tremble being the same thing, when lion rough, in other words, violent or harsh, in wildest rage doth roar. And you get more alliteration of rage and roar. So if you are afraid, he says, then know that I, as snug the joiner, am a lion fell, nor else no lion's dam. So he's telling them his name, that he's not a real lion. So he says, as snug the joiner, I am a lion fell. Fell means cruel or fierce, but another possibility is a fell could refer to the lion's skin that he might be wearing. So he's saying, I'm not a real lion. He says, nor else no lion's dam. So I may look like a lion, but I am not in any other way a mother lion. That's what a lion's dam is. Because in the original myth, that's what threatens Thisbe. It's a lion with its cubs. She's either looking for food for them or she's defending them from humans. But it's a mother lion that ends up threatening Thisbe. So that's why it's a lion's dam. There's also some inclination that he doesn't want to be seen to be female. So that's another reason for him to say, I'm not really a lion. And I'm especially not really a female lion, if that's what you're implying. And he concludes, for if I should as lion come in strife into this place, twere pity on my life. We've seen that phrase, to pity on my life, before, when they talk about the lion earlier. Because he's saying, if I should as a lion come in strife, strife meaning violence, from that word striving, into this place. So if I come violently here, to pity on my life. Basically, it were a calamity for my life, for my survival, if I was to come and scare these women dressed as a lion. So I hope you'll remember, I'm not a real lion. 
Again, they know this. They have seen plays before, and Theseus remarks on it. He says, a very gentle beast and of a good conscience. Gentle here meaning sort of good-mannered or courteous. Like, it's very nice of him to give us this disclaimer, and of a good conscience. In other words, and having a good conscience. Very conscientious of him to tell us this, even though we did not need it. And then starts a real chain of wit. And not very funny wit, in my opinion, but there you go. Demetrius pops in with, the very best at a beast, my lord, that ever I saw. So Theseus calls him a gentle beast, and Demetrius puns on best and beast. So basically, the best person at beasting. By the way, the words best and beast probably would have been pronounced much closer together then than they are today. And Lysander has to keep competing with Demetrius, in this case for Theseus' laughter and attention, and he says, This lion is a very fox for his valor. Confusing, isn't it? Well, that's sort of the point, because foxes are known for cunning, while lions are known for their valor. So he isn't saying he's a lion for his valor, he's saying he may be a lion, but he's a fox for his valor, like he's a very smart, brave person, which is to say not very brave at all. And Theseus picks up on this chain. He says, true, and a goose for his discretion. So the lion is a fox for his valor, and a goose, geese known for being idiots. After all, foxes are the ones who are known for their discretion, which means like cunning or good judgment. So he's not even a fox for his discretion. He's a goose for his discretion. But then Demetrius disagrees. He says, not so, my lord, for his valor cannot carry his discretion, and the fox carries the goose. So this is a pun on the word carry. The first sense is support or sustain. So his valor, his bravery, can't sustain his discretion, his smarts, his wisdom. But, he says, the fox carries the goose. Because foxes are known for carrying away geese in the middle of the night from farmers. And then Theseus, witty guy he is, turns it around even more. He says, his discretion, I am sure, cannot carry his valor. For the goose carries not the fox. Now he's saying his smarts can't support his bravery. Not the other way around. Why? Because the goose carries not the fox. You never see geese carrying away foxes to eat them. And this goes back to that famous expression, discretion is the better part of valor. You can see, by the way, why this is one of the most frequently cut parts of this play. It depends on a much older series of associations, which we just don't have anymore in our culture, about lions and geese and foxes. And in fact, you'll see a lot of productions just cut all of these comments entirely. Number one, they're kind of mean, and number two, they're just not very funny. Anyway, like us, Theseus is pretty much done with these jokes. He says, it is well, like, okay, that's enough. Leave it to his discretion, and let us listen to the moon. Discretion, again, here meaning something like his discerning judgment. So this is probably still referring to Snug's discretion as the lion, but I suppose it could also be referring to the next guy, to Starveling, who's playing the moon, because he says, let us listen to the moon. In any event, let's be done with this commentary, and let's listen to the next guy. So Starveling has a speech, too. He says, This lanthorn doth the horned moon present. Lanthorn is an older spelling of lantern, but you also get some puns on thorn, as in the thorn bush, and horn, as in the moon. And he says it presents, in other words, it plays or depicts the horned moon, meaning crescent moon, like it has horns. But of course, before he can even get to line two, he gets interrupted by these wise guys. Demetrius says he should have worn the horns on his head. I guess he kind of has a point here, even if it's a mean point. You're a guy, you can just wear horns, like the moon has horns. Why would you want a lanthorn to play something horned? But there's also another bit of a pun here, another pun we would not get today, which is that horns were the sign of a husband whose wife had cheated on him, a cuckold. So it's a kind of double mockery. And Theseus picks up on this joke. He says, he is no crescent and his horns are invisible within the circumference. A crescent means something that grows bigger. So the crescent moon is starting little and growing bigger. So what he's saying is that Starveling isn't growing bigger, which if you can see by his name and by this idea of tailors being thin and poor, they do not look like they're getting any bigger anytime soon. So what's the opposite of a crescent? It's a full moon. That's why the horns are invisible within the circumference. So you can't see a crescent moon in the whole moon, even though you know it's there. Sure, rich people making fun of poor people. That's always fun. Anyway, Starveling wants to get back to his speech. He says, This lanthorn doth the horned moon present. Myself, the man in the moon do seem to be. So he finally gets to his second line. So I appear to be the man in the moon. So he's explaining he isn't the moon, he's the man in the moon. 
And just when he's starting the rest of his speech, Theseus interrupts him again. He says, this is the greatest error of all the rest. So this is the biggest mistake we've seen so far. Why? The man should be put into the lanthorn. So if the lantern is the one that's representing the moon, Starling should be inside the lantern if he's the man in the moon. That's what Theseus says. How is it else the man in the moon? How is it otherwise the man in the moon? And Demetrius has an answer. He says, he dares not come there for the candle. For you see, it is already in snuff. So he can't enter into the lantern because the candle is still burning inside it. He get burned. For you see, it is already in snuff. In snuff means in need of putting out. But there's a real pun here on getting angry. So just like the candle, Starveling is mad and needs to be put out. And he's just getting madder the more they make fun of him. And finally, Hippolyta joins in too. She says, I am a weary of this moon. What he would change. So she says she's tired of this moon talking. She wishes he would change. In other words, change his phase. Like the moon gets bigger and smaller, but probably also change as in end his speech or say something different. These lines are also a real echo of the beginning of the play, where Theseus in particular was talking about how he wishes the moon would get smaller. You know, because it would bring in their wedding date. And Theseus has an answer for that. He says, It appears by his small light of discretion that he is in the wane, but yet in courtesy, in all reason, we must stay the time. So his small light of discretion is a kind of mean, poetic way to say his not very large brains. He only has a tiny little light in his head. So it appears from that that he is in the wane. In other words, shrinking down to nothing. Like the moon does, or like in this case, the person does. But he stops himself, he says, but yet in courtesy, in all reason. You know, it's only reasonable that we must stay the time. Stay means wait out. Because remember, they really want to go to bed at this point, so they're just kind of waiting out the time. So we should wait for him to finish. And Lysander says, Proceed, moon. Wow, another super mean interruption. And Starveling is sick of this, and he starts speaking in prose. He says, All that I have to say is to tell you that this lanthorn is the moon, I the man in the moon, this thornbush my thornbush, and this dog my dog. He completely drops the lines that were given to him, and he's like, Here's what it is. This is mine. This is that. This is that. Now leave me alone. It's nice to see somebody yell at these people for one second. But Demetrius still keeps up the mockery. And that same joke, he says, why all these should be in the lanthorn, for all these are in the moon. It's just like Theseus's joke from earlier, that all that stuff should be crammed into the lantern. But finally things move forward. He says, but silence, here comes Thisbe. So finally the plot is picking up again. The play's coming to its end. They want to see where this goes. In comes Flute playing Thisbe, and he says, this is old Ninny's tomb. Man, they are just never going to get that right, are they? Where is my love? And snug as the lion roars and off runs Thisbe, but of course she remembers to drop her mantle behind, her cloak. Because that's important. So Snug gives out a mighty roar, and Demetrius pipes up, Well roared, lion! And Theseus says, Well run, Thisbe! And Hippolyta says, Well shown, moon! So it's this language echo of all these well-dones. So after being mean, they're cheering them, though maybe a little snarkily. And Hippolyta finishes. She says, Truly, the moon shines with a good grace. So after all that mockery of poor Starveling, she's so nice. And it's actually kind of a lovely phrase, with a good grace. So obviously there's an alliteration there, but it's also sort of sweet-sounding. And they're not done with their wells yet, because the lion now bloodies that cloak, that mantle. And Theseus says, well-moused lion. Mousing is what cats do when they hunt mice. So he's saying this lion looks like a cat with a mouse in its jaw, because it has that mantle in its mouth. Oh good, they're narrating. Just like Hamlet in that play within a play, nothing annoys actors quite so much as the audience narrating for them. Because Demetrius says, and then came Pyramus, because Bottom has entered as Pyramus, and off runs the lion, and Lysander says, and so the lion vanished. So Pyramus is in, and now he has another speech. Another totally over-the-top speech. He says, Sweet moon, I thank thee for thy sunny beams. Because he's coming to find Thisbe, and he needs to see her. But of course, he has a great oxymoron, the sunny beams of the moon. He goes on, I thank thee, moon, for shining now so bright. So just as in that last moment he was thanking the wall, now he's thanking the moon. And why is he thanking it? For by thy gracious, golden, glittering gleams, I trust to take of truest Thisbe sight. 
Man, no one does alliteration quite like this guy. Gracious, golden, glittering gleams. And some texts have beams instead of gleams, but that kind of feels like it defeats the whole purpose. And that happens in the next line, too. I trust to take of truest Thisbe sight. All those T sounds. I trust, in other words, I'm sure, to take sight of truest Thisbe. Take sight means to see her, but it doesn't start with the letter T, does it? So that works out much better. So he believes he's going to see her by these moonbeams. But, oh, disaster. But stay, oh spite, but mark, poor knight, what dreadful dole is here. But suddenly we have an entirely new meter and an entirely new rhyme scheme. So after all this beautiful ABAB rhymed iambic pentameter, suddenly we get but stay, oh spite. But stay as in but wait, oh spite. In other words, malice or terrible luck. Just like Helena's oh spite, oh hell from earlier. Again, this is as much a parody of the lovers as it is of Pyramus and Thisbe in particular. But mark, poor knight. Mark meaning notice or see or pay attention to. Poor knight is him. What dreadful dole is here? Dole means grief or sadness. But you also get that fun alliteration of dreadful dole. And then he starts talking to his eyes. Eyes, do you see? How can it be? Oh, dainty duck. Oh, dear. So if you liked dreadful dole, you'll love dainty duck. It sounds utterly ridiculous. But duck is another way to say dear. It's a sort of cutesy term. Dainty usually means kind of small and cute. But there's also another sense of it as delicious. So dainty duck could be like dinner. This is all meant to be deadly serious. And in fact, it is completely over the top. And then he finds her cloak. He says... Thy mantle good? What, stained with blood? So your good mantle, in other words, your cloak. He finds it and he says, what, stained with blood? Now, good and blood probably would have rhymed much more closely in the original pronunciation than they do now, but there may also be a little bit of tortured rhyming attempt here. Certainly in a modern production, you can totally play with that. And now he assumes she's died, so he starts to lament. He says, approach ye furies fell. The furies in Greek mythology were these female revenge goddesses who hunted down wrongdoers. And fell means cruel or fierce. So he's calling for them to revenge the death of Thisbe. And then he calls to some other goddesses. He says, O fates, come, come, cut thread and thrum, quail, crush, conclude, and quell. The fates who we've seen mentioned before, usually in more serious times, are these goddesses who decided when humans would die by cutting the imaginary thread of their life. So he's asking the fates to cut thread and thrum. So yes, the fates will cut thread, presumably the thread of his own life because he doesn't want to live anymore. And thrum is waste yarn that's left after a project is cut out of a loom. Why does this matter? Well, because Bottom is a weaver. So it isn't surprising that there's weaving terms all over this. It also seems to indicate that maybe he was the one who wrote it or rewrote it because it has weaving terms in it and Peter Quince is not a weaver. So not only should they cut thread and thrum, but he says in this great follow-up, quail, crush, conclude, and quell. Quail means to overpower or destroy, and then crush and conclude and quell. Quell means to kill or put down. So not only do you have these four sort of hard K sounds, but they're all stressed syllables. So usually lines start with unstressed syllables, but here it's like quail, crush, conclude, quell. Very over the top. And this is the beginning of the most over-the-top death scene in the history of literature. And because the nobles can't leave it alone, they have to comment on it. Theseus says, This passion and the death of a dear friend would go near to make a man look sad. So the passion he's referring to is probably an emotional speech or an outburst, not just the emotion. He says that would go near to make a man look sad. That would almost or begin to make someone look sad. So he's commenting on how terrible this acting is. Because he's saying, if you heard this emotional speech, but also one of your dear friends died, well, you'd probably start to look sad then. But you look sad because of the death of your friend, not because of this speech. So he's implying the speech is not in any way sad. But Hippolyta sort of shushes him. She says, Beshrew my heart, but I pity the man. She is so nice. Beshrew means curse my heart if I don't pity the man. Like he really seems to be sad. He's taking this very seriously. But Bottom may or may not notice this. He just keeps on with his speech. He says, Oh, wherefore nature didst thou lion's frame, since lion vile hath here deflowered my dear, which is, no, no, which was, 
the fairest dame that lived that loved that liked that looked with cheer so long sentence right so he's talking to nature and he says wherefore nature in other words why nature did you frame lions frame means to make or create why did you even make them since lion vile this terrible lion hath here deflowered my dear oh that verb i mean deflowered can literally mean destroy like a beautiful young flower but there's also really weird sexual undertones here and it's a good verb because it also has that d sound that works so well with deer but it is super strange and he's saying that she is and then he catches himself no she was the fairest dame dame here meaning a lady especially like a high-born woman that lived that loved that liked that looked with cheer why use one verb when you can use like seven and conveniently enough they all start with the letter l so he gets alliteration and repetition his two favorite things so looked with cheer can mean joy but cheer can also just be a face or an expression so he's saying she was the most beautiful lady that ever did any of these things now he's really upset he says come tears confound confound means to ruin or spoil so he finishes talking to his tears and then he starts talking to his sword he says outsword and wound the pap of pyramus just like that rhyme of good and blood earlier confound and wound probably would have been much closer rhymes earlier but maybe not so close he couldn't still make them a bad rhyme he's saying his sword should come out and wound the pap of pyramus pap means breast but with all those p sounds it sounds completely insane and he goes on i that left pap where heart doth hop so the left side of the chest where heart doth hop he means like beat but these tiny little nonsense words pap and hop make him sound completely silly it's as though he's writing for the alliteration instead of writing for something that doesn't sound ridiculous so he gets heart and hop but it's hard to sound serious when you say the phrase where heart doth hop and then he proceeds to die for like 10 minutes he says thus die i thus 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 so i'm dying like this so i think those thuses are meant to imply those are the stabs and he falls to the ground and in theory he's dead now but he has more to say he says now am i dead now am i fled my soul is in the sky so i'm fled as in i've run away from life to heaven my soul is in the sky so yeah we know what dying means buddy but he's just squeezing every juice out of this ham and now he starts talking to more things he says tongue lose thy light it's fitting this is one of his last lines because he says tongue lose thy light what usually loses its light is the eyes but he's saying no the tongue should lose its light and then he talks to the moon he says moon take thy flight in other words fly away and off goes the moon now die 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 and i think he's finally dead there this is an absolute gold mine for the actor playing bottom and after that super over-the-top dramatic death demetrius of course has to get a pun in he says no die but an ace for him for he is but one Ugh, please cut this line please do it i wish shakespeare had done it a die of course is a singular form of dice he says he's not a die but an ace an ace being like snake eyes it's a one on a die the lowest possible score for he is but one just like that one on the die and lysander comes back to that terrible joke he says less than an ace man for he is dead he is nothing so he says he's not even one dead people are nothing and theseus has one last unfunny joke to wrap up this line he says with the help of a surgeon he might yet recover and yet prove an ass so with the help of a surgeon in other words a doctor he might yet recover he might still recover and yet prove an ass in other words prove himself to be an idiot but of course there's also that pun on bottom having just been a donkey and for this particular line the pun is on ace and ass so even if he gets better he's not even going to be an ace he's going to be an ass and then hippolyta has a question she says how chance moonshine is gone before thisbe comes back and finds her lover so how chance how does it happen that moonshine's left because remember he told moonshine to run away before thisbe comes back and finds her lover remember this is a famous story pyramus and thisbe so they know she's going to come back but how will she be able to see him and theseus has an answer he says she will find him by starlight because this is the moment where thisbe comes back in and theseus says here she comes and her passion ends the play more narrating
Her passion, in other words, her passionate speech, her emotional speech, is what's going to end the play. And Hippolyta says, methinks she should not use a long one for such a pyramus. So methinks, it seems to me, she shouldn't use too long of a speech for a pyramus like this, this ridiculous pyramus. I hope she will be brief. And Demetrius has to add on his two cents. He says, a moat will turn the balance. Which pyramus, which this be, is the better? So a moat, in other words, a tiny little speck will turn the balance. You know those balance scales where you have two pans on either side? So just adding a tiny little speck to either one will totally turn the balance. Which pyramus, which thisbe? In other words, which of pyramus or thisbe is the better? So it's as though they're even right now. And better in what way? He says, he for a man, God warrant us. She for a woman, God bless us. God warrant us here means something like, may God protect us or may God keep us safe. Basically what they're saying is that Bottom as Pyramus is as unbelievable a man as Flute as Thisbe is a woman. So they're both totally unbelievable playing their parts. And Lysander's doing more narrating. He says, she hath spied him already with those sweet eyes. She spied him. In other words, she's seen him already with those sweet eyes of hers, implying that she is not perhaps the prettiest woman. No offense, Flute. And Demetrius adds to that, he says, and thus she means, videliset means here not in our modern sense, but mourns or laments or even moans. And in that Latin term, it's just Latin for as you see. It's where we get in academic papers that little abbreviation V-I-Z period. He says she's doing it now. Maybe she started to make a noise already. And she's also using that sort of horror rhythm and meter. She says, asleep, my love? What, dead, my dove? There are other parts in his plays where Shakespeare specifically makes fun of other poets for rhyming love and dove in terrible love poetry, so he knows how to do it best. And also notice that she also uses that D alliteration of dead and dove, just like Pyramus did. That is the most popular alliteration, apparently. She says, O Pyramus, arise! Speak! Speak! Quite dumb? In other words, silent or unspeaking. Dead? Dead? A tomb must cover thy sweet eyes. There's that rhyming of dumb and tomb, which again might have been a little closer in Elizabethan times, but are still a pretty terrible rhyme anytime. But even in the silly poetry, you get the eyes mentioned again, that a tomb is going to have to cover his eyes because he's dead. And now she really starts mourning for him. She says, these lily lips, this cherry nose, these yellow cowslip cheeks are gone, are gone. So this is fairly traditional classical poetry when you describe your lover's parts with flowers. And actually the lovers did a fair amount of this earlier, as did the fairies. But notice how badly it's done here. Lily lips. So it gets the alliteration right of the L's. But what it doesn't get right is that lily means lily white, which usually applies much better to one's skin, not to one's lips. You don't want someone with white lips. That's super creepy, kind of vampire style. And then she talks about his cherry nose. We've seen cherries used constantly in this play, but always compared to lips, not to nose, because it means ripe and red. So this is kind of like a Santa Claus comparison, or even perhaps Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. These yellow cowslip cheeks. And a cowslip is a beautiful yellow flower, but you wouldn't necessarily want to compare that to someone's cheeks. Does he have jaundice? And even if these were the right descriptions, they seem much better suited for a woman than for a man. But in any way, these are all gone. And she says, lovers make moan. As though she's talking to all lovers, but maybe specifically to the lovers in this scene, that you should moan. In other words, mourn or lament. And then she has one more odd comparison. She says, his eyes were green as leeks. So yeah, his eyes may have actually been green, but leeks, those sort of long onions, are a weird description for green eyes. And then she makes the same lament the Pyramus did earlier. She says, oh, sisters three, come, come to me with hands as pale as milk. These sisters three are the fates again, the ones who decide how long humans are going to live and cut that thread. So she calls on the fates to come to her with their hands as pale as milk. Again, not a great comparison, sort of food-like, but maybe the kind of comparison that would be available to these poor people. So they have pale hands, but Thisbe says, lay them in gore, since you have shore with shears his thread of silk. So gore means blood, but she's saying you should take your pale hands 
and dip them into blood. Why? Because you have shore, in other words, you've cut, a sort of archaic version of that word shorn, with shears, his thread of silk. You know, this thread that symbolizes the life that the fates cut. You also get another alliteration, shore and shears, but again, not a very good poetic one. And then she starts talking to her body parts too. Tongue, not a word. So that's enough talking. Come, trusty sword. Come, blade my breast imbrue. So word and sword. I don't even know if Shakespeare could have made this rhyme. It's rhyme-ish. It's like a terrible rhyme by design. And notice she uses the word trusty, which is how they've been referring to Thisbe the whole play. It may just be the only adjective they know. Come, blade my breast imbrue. Imbrue here means stain with blood. But just like Pyramus, she gets those hard B alliteration sounds. Blade, breast, imbrue. So she stabs herself. And then she turns to the crowd and says, And farewell, friends. Thus Thisbe ends. I mean, ends is technically right, but it sounds bizarre. And she has one final goodbye. Adieu. 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 Adieu, the French word for goodbye, is a very poetic way to say goodbye. You'll see it in more serious love poetry. But this is definitely a parody of other kinds of poetry that Shakespeare's read, that the audience has seen either in plays or in books. And often in production, you'll see this be sort of unexpectedly moving at times, as though maybe Flute is the only good actor in the crowd. I don't know, I guess you could do that if you want, but he can be ridiculous too. And that is the end of that. And so Theseus looks at everyone else and says, Moonshine and Lion are left to bury the dead. But Demetrius says, I and Wall too. So the only characters left alive are these personifications because they were played by people. So I guess they can bury the dead. But as soon as Bottom hears that comment, he jumps up from being dead and he says, no, I assure you, the wall is down that parted their fathers. Parted here meaning separated. So don't worry, the wall's down. He's got to qualify everything. So that's the end of the play. But he has one more suggestion. He says, will it please you to see the epilogue or to hear a Bergamasque dance between two of our company? So do you want to see the epilogue, which is a sort of summing up speech at the end of a play, the opposite of a prologue? Or to hear a Bergamasque dance. So Bergamasque means that it's from Bergamo in Italy. It's kind of like a rustic Italian country dance. And one thing you should know is that actually many Elizabethan plays ended up with some kind of dance sequence unrelated to the play just at the end to sort of send people off. So even if it is a tragedy, the actors would come out, do an awesome dance, and everybody would go out whistling the tune. So they've prepared one of those between two of the company just in case. But notice, by the way, he screwed up the senses again because he's asking if they want to see the epilogue. You would hear an epilogue or hear a Bergamasque dance and you would see a dance. But Theseus cuts him off. He says, no epilogue, I pray you. Pray meaning ask. Why? For your play needs no excuse. Excuse here as an explanation, but there's also some sense of excusing our terrible work. He says, never excuse. For when the players are all dead, there need none to be blamed. He's saying when the players, in other words, when the actors are all dead, because they've all killed themselves in character, there need none to be blamed. You don't have to tell us who did it. We know who did it. We followed the play. But his mind starts to wander a little bit. He says, Mary, if he that writ it had played Pyramus and hanged himself in Thisbe's garter, it would have been a fine tragedy. Mary being that sort of light oath that means I swear by Mary. If he that writ it, in other words, if the person that wrote it, the playwright, had played Pyramus and hanged himself in Thisbe's garter, garter being that thing that holds stockings up. So basically, if this tragedy had ended in the playwright committing suicide, it would have been a real tragedy. Seems like kind of an insult to Peter Quince. And actually, mid-sentence, Theseus sort of changes. He thinks he knows he's being a little harsh. He says, and so it is truly and very notably discharged. Notably discharged means noticeably or finely discharged, performed. So the sentence sort of starts out as an insult, and then halfway through he maybe changes his mind. Or maybe, I don't know, Hippolyta gives him a little jab in the ribs, like, be nice. But even though he says not to do an epilogue, he says, but come, you're Bergamask. In other words, let's have that dance you talked about earlier. Let your epilogue alone. In other words, leave alone with the epilogue. Don't do that. But give us the dance. Because one thing to remember is that this sequence here is the end not only of an entertainment before a fictional wedding, but if you believe these scholars, the entertainment at a real wedding. So why not have a big dance here? That's great. Have a dance number. 
It's also important to kind of give a little bit of spacing between this complete nonsense and the last few speeches of the play, which are going to be much more serious and more magical. So you have to kind of burn off the tone of the mechanical's play, which is fast and funny and ridiculous and over the top. And when that dance finishes, now Theseus can do a little more serious stuff. He says, The iron tongue of midnight hath told twelve. So the first thing you'll notice is that suddenly we're in very regular verse. And it's also much better poetry. Like, you can't quite put this good poetry next to that much bad poetry. You need to kind of calm that down with a little wordless section of dance. So the iron tongue of midnight is a beautiful image. It may refer literally to a bell that rings midnight. It's tolled twelve, counted out twelve, as in for whom the bell tolls, or also tells, as in one, two, three, four, five. So in any event, midnight is here. He says, lovers, to bed. Tis almost fairy time. So when is fairy time? Well, specifically, it's midnight, but it's also darkness in particular. Remember, the realm of the fairies is especially contingent on whether it's day or night. He says, I fear we shall outsleep the coming morn as much as we this night have overwatched. So there's a real comparison going on in these two lines. He says he's worried we'll outsleep, in other words, oversleep the coming morn, tomorrow morning, as much as we have overwatched, which means stayed awake too late, this night. So if we're going to bed at midnight and we usually go to bed at 10, well, then we'll also wake up two hours later. He continues, this palpable gross play hath well beguiled the heavy gate of night. Palpable gross is a pretty cool adjective. It means like obviously ignorant. But he says it's well beguiled. In other words, it's charmed away the time of the heavy gate of night. Another beautiful image like that iron tongue. Heavy gate is slow plodding footsteps because he's saying the night went very slowly. But this stupid play helped to actually make it go faster. You can just see night like plodding along, taking its time like some sort of overgrown elephant. So after he said lovers to bed earlier, now he says it again. Sweet friends, to bed. And then he has one last declaration. He says, a fortnight hold we this solemnity in nightly revels and new jollity. So after a totally unrhymed speech, it ends with a rhyming couplet. So a fortnight, in other words, for the next two weeks, hold we this solemnity. We're going to continue on with this celebration, that solemnizing, in nightly revels and new jollity. Nightly revels doesn't just mean every night. It means that they happen at night. Revels are festivities or entertainments, just like the fairies had in the woods. And I think it's really significant that these revels happen at fairy times. They happen at night. And new jollity. Jollity, obviously, is happiness or pleasure. We have that same word jolly. But there's also definite undertones of sexual pleasure. Because now that they're married, every night they can do whatever they want. So he has a rhyming couplet and he heads off. Everyone goes off to bed. And just as Theseus just said, it's almost fairy time, well, in come the fairies. And this is kind of a beautiful touch, because really, their storyline was basically wound up. I mean, Oberon warned us before that he might come back and bless the house of Theseus. But I think we were supposed to take that as exposition, not as something that was actually going to happen in the play. And then they show up. It's an incredibly sort of magical moment. We thought we were all done with the fairies. I mean, hell, we thought we were done with the play. And in comes Robin Goodfellow again. In comes Puck. And it's always very delightful to see him back. And he comes back alone because he's sort of a harbinger to the fairies. He's the first one to come out. And the other thing you'll notice immediately is that we're going back to that same fairy meter and rhyme so that we know they're kind of spell casting. He says, Now the hungry lion roars and the wolf behowls the moon whilst the heavy plowman snores all with weary task foredone. He's really setting the scene of this night. He says, now the hungry lion roars, which is actually a fun tie-in to snug roaring as the lion a few minutes before, and the wolf behowls the moon. I really like that verb, behowls. It just means it howls at the moon, but behowls is so much stronger. So these animals are giving notice of the night, whilst at the same time, the heavy plowman snores. Heavy doesn't mean that he has a weight problem. It means that he's sleepy or exhausted. Why? Because he's a plowman. He plows the field all day. He snores all with weary task foredone. The all here means completely, foredone, worn out, with his weary task, with his exhausting labor. 
And he goes on to these other images of night. He says, Now the wasted brands do glow, whilst the screech owl screeching loud puts the wretch that lies in woe in remembrance of a shroud. So the wasted brands, brands are like coals or burnt out firewood in the fireplace. And wasted means they're spent or burned down to embers. And he's saying they glow, which means the fires are going out. And at the same time, the screech owl, screeching loud, puts the wretch that lies in woe. A wretch is like an unfortunate or unhappy person, especially someone who's unfortunate or unhappy because of poverty. So he says that screech owl sound puts this wretch, puts this poor miserable person in remembrance of a shroud. Basically, it makes him remember death. Now, this is partly because there was a tradition that the owl shrieking was a sign of death or bad luck. It happens in Macbeth, by the way. But it isn't just remembering death. It's remembering sleep and nighttime as a kind of temporary death that's reborn in the morning. So it's this oddly kind of contemplative dark moment in an otherwise kind of nice speech. And he goes on. Now it is the time of night that the graves, all gaping wide, everyone lets forth his sprite in the churchway paths to glide. Because remember, these aren't just fairies. They also hang out with the ghosts. The graves all gaping wide. Gaping here specifically means opening their mouths wide. It's an incredibly exciting image for these graves, as though they have mouths that they use to cast up these spirits. He says, everyone lets forth his sprite. In other words, each grave lets forth his sprite, his spirit, his ghost that dwells inside, in the churchway paths to glide. So these aren't just paths inside the churchyard where the burying happens. These are roads to and from the church. And because there was usually just like one main church for every parish, which took up a lot of land, there were these specific roads that people used to transport the bodies of their dead relatives to their local church for burial. And for the most part, people tried to stay off those roads any other time. They were known as corpse roads. Cool, right? And they were sort of known to be haunted by ghosts and fairies. So that's what happens now at night. The ghosts are in these churchway paths. It's all very haunted and creepy. And he continues, And we fairies that do run by the triple Hecate's team from the presence of the sun, following darkness like a dream, now are frolic. This is just beautiful language. Shakespeare's really turning it on hard here. And he has to after he's done all this ridiculous stuff with the mechanicals. So we fairies that do run by the triple Hecate's team. So Hecate was a Greek goddess who was closely associated with witchcraft and with night and the moon and ghosts and fairies. In Ovid's Metamorphoses, the witch Medea worships her, so she's a pretty powerful figure in that. And why is she triple? Well, because she was usually depicted as having three faces, and sometimes she embodied three distinct goddesses, or three ages of women, or three phases of the moon even. But she was a triple goddess. So he says the fairies do run by her team. Team here is like a chariot, and Hecate was sometimes depicted as driving a chariot drawn by dragons, just like the one they mentioned night driving earlier in the play. So he's saying that the fairies run alongside her chariot, because she maybe is the one who draws night. And they run from the presence of the sun. Remember, they can't be around when the sun comes up. Following darkness like a dream. Oh, this is such a beautiful line. After all, it's called A Midsummer Night's Dream. So this is kind of the line that brings the entire play together. And it's a pretty famous line now, but remember how strange it is. And sort of perfect, too, because when you wake up, your dream runs away with the darkness. As soon as day arrives, you wake up and your dream is gone. So he says we fairies that run away with the darkness. Now we're frolic. It's kind of an adjective form here instead of the usual noun. It means like frisky or merry. So we run away at day, but now at night we're frolicking. And he finishes, not a mouse shall disturb this hallowed house. Hallowed means made holy, maybe by the celebration of the wedding or by the protection of the fairies. You get that alliteration of hallowed and house. But they're going to protect it so much that not even a mouse is going to disturb it. It's very important these people get their sleep or, you know, they're not sleep. 
And then he explains what he's doing here. He says, I am sent with broom before to sweep the dust behind the door. This is oddly small time, but actually, yeah, Puck was traditionally a household goblin who would do these kind of helpful or sometimes mischievous tasks around the house. And one of them is sweeping. So he sent with broom before, in other words, ahead of the other fairies, to sweep the dust behind the door. And just as Theseus and Hippolyta had left with their whole company a few minutes before, now in come Oberon and Titania with their whole company. It's like a switching out of regimes at night. And as he comes in with all of his fairies, and in some productions it's going to be like dozens of fairies, he gives them an order. He says, through the house give glimmering light by the dead and drowsy fire. So he's telling them to give glimmering light, in other words, to make or send glimmering light throughout the house by the dead and drowsy fire. And this is a little confusing. Are they picking up these dying brands to carry with them? Are they lighting their own fires on the remains of that fire? But either way, he chooses really cool adjectives here. I mean, number one, they alliterate, dead and drowsy. But number two, there's that nice sense of sleepiness in those words. The fire is asleep, but we're going to make our light by it. Every elf and fairy sprite hop as light as bird from briar. So he's telling every elf, in other words, every fairy, and fairy sprite, here being another word for spirit, he wants them to hop as light as bird from briar. Light as in lightly, or delicately, as a bird hops from a briar. Briars are these prickly thorn bushes, so the birds have to be very careful about hopping on them. And then he gives them the final command. And this ditty after me, sing and dance it trippingly. So this ditty, this song, after me, in other words, repeated after me, sing and dance it trippingly. Trippingly means nimbly or dancingly. So you can see the fairies almost as these tiny little birds that are just dancing everywhere. And we'll get to it in a second, but what this ditty is, what this song is, there's some debate about it. And Titania follows up that command. She says, first rehearse your song by rote, to each word a warbling note. So first rehearse, maybe not in our modern sense of practice, but more like state or pronounce it, by rote, in other words by heart, by repeating what Oberon says, to each word a warbling note. Warbling meaning musical, especially like bird song. These are definitely bird fairies. So match a musical note to every word. Hand in hand, with fairy grace, will we sing and bless this place. Grace is like favor or goodwill. So we're all going to join hands, and with fairy grace, with the goodwill of fairies, we're going to sing and bless this place. So they're here for a mission. They're not just going to wrap up the play. Their job is to bless the house. And then there's some kind of big song and dance. We know from what he just described that it involves fire of some kind, it involves dancing, and it involves a song. But we don't necessarily have a text for that song. He says, repeat after me, but what are they supposed to repeat? In any event, one way that this song and dance works is as the entertainment at the end of a play. And especially if you believe this was originally written for a nobleman's wedding, this was the big production number. And maybe they could have run throughout all the house, these fairies in the play, blessing it. So this is very meta. It doubles as an entertainment in the play and a blessing of the house in the play and doing the same thing for the actual house if in fact this was for an original wedding. Again, we've come so far from the actual plot of the play that the purpose here just seems like entertainment. Really, this is like ending number seven of the play. And it's impressive not only how Shakespeare gets away with this because he leaves the play itself pretty short, so there's time for this, but because he's just repeatedly entertaining every time he does this. So even after this play is in many ways over, we have several more scenes. We have the lovers and Bottom waking up. We have Bottom coming to his guise. We have that discussion of imagination. We have that terrible Pyramus and Thisbe play. We have Theseus's wrap-up speech. We have Puck's wrap-up speech. We have one by Oberon. We're going to have another one by Puck. And Shakespeare gets away with this because he's really good at it. Each new one, even though it seems like the play should be over, is more magical than the last and more entertaining than the last. This is a guy who is really showing off and, you know, kind of gets away with it. So there's a huge song and dance number, a spectacular performance, and then Oberon finally wraps things up. He says... Now, until the break of day, through this house each fairy stray. So until the break of day, which you remember is when they have to leave, through this house each fairy stray. 
Stray here means wander. And notice how the verb is pushed to the end of the line. Not each fairy stray through the house, which would be the normal order. And now he says what Oberon and Titania are going to do. He says, to the best bride bed will we, which by us shall blessed be. So the best bride bed is Theseus and Hippolytus, because it's the most important one. And the bride bed is a place where a bride and groom sleep together for the first time on their wedding night. And sometimes it's decorated and it's special, because until then they've officially been sleeping apart. So he says, will we, in other words, we will go, which by us shall blessed be. Now that's some alliteration. Best bride bed by us blessed be. So we're going to bless their bed. And why? Because he says, and the issue there create ever shall be fortunate. The issue, which means like the progeny or the offspring created in that bed, ever always shall be fortunate. So they're going to bless them for good luck for their children. And by the same token, he says, so shall all the couples three ever true in loving be. Ever true means ever loyal. Because remember, this play was all about the trouble they got into when the lovers loved the wrong people. And in fact, this fairy magic is the only thing that's still holding this all together because Demetrius is only in love with Helena because he's under that spell. So that's another guarantee they're offering to these three couples. And the blots of nature's hand shall not in their issue stand. So the blots, which means like the blemishes of nature's hand, hand here as in creating or making, shall not in their issue stand. Won't stand, in other words, won't appear in their issue, their offspring. Never mole, hair lip, nor scar, nor mark prodigious, such as are despised in all nativity, shall upon their children be. So he's describing exactly what these blots of nature's hand are. He says, no moles, no hair lips, which are like cleft palates, nor scar, nor mark prodigious. So there was a belief at the time that birthmarks could be a bad omen. So that's what this prodigious mark is. So there's not going to be any ominous birthmarks such as are despised in nativity. Nativity just means childbirth. So at the time, if your child was born with one of these things, it was thought to be a really bad sign. You despised it when the child was born. He says, none of these shall upon their children be. That is the power of fairy stuff. And how are they going to make that happen? He says, with this field do consecrate, every fairy take his gate and each several chamber bless through this palace with sweet peace. The consecrate here means blessed, almost like holy water. But instead of being official holy water, it's field dew from all the flowers in the morning. It's a beautiful image. And again, it really sets up that idea of the fairies as a kind of secular or pagan counterpoint to the official religion. So he's handing out this field dew. He says, every fairy take his gate. Gate meaning steps. And these can be literal or figurative steps. It can also mean kind of like every fairy should do his job. And each several chamber bless. In other words, each different room should be blessed by these fairies. Make sure that you cover all the rooms, especially the rooms where the people are sleeping. Every chamber through this palace with sweet peace. So they're blessing it with peace. And in the time Shakespeare wrote it, remember that bless and peace were much closer as rhymes. And in fact, he says, and the owner of it blessed ever shall in safety rest. So the blessed owner of this palace, in other words, Theseus, ever shall, in other words, forever or always, will rest in safety. And rest can mean remain safe, or it can mean actually sleep in safety. And then he ends with these three beautiful commands. He says, trip away, make no stay, meet me all by break of day. Trip means to sort of dance nimbly, away through the house. Make no stay. Stay here means delay, so don't delay at all. Let's go. Meet me all by break of day. So make sure you meet me before the day breaks, which is a total echo of the first line of the speech. It's a nice way to kind of bring it full circle because they have to be out by the time day breaks. But I really love the sounds of these words. Trip away, make no stay get those stressed syllables, and also that internal rhyme of away and stay and day, even in the middle of lines, not just at the ends. But I also really love those single-syllable verbs, trip, make, meet. I love also how that very last line, meet me all by break of day, is all monosyllables. So it's kind of very simple, stretched out, plain spoken after what is basically a very poetic speech. 
And the effect of it is essentially to cast a spell on us as well. And one of the kind of amazing rhythmic things that Shakespeare does with the end of this play is that he slows it down. and He sort of creates that magic. So this ends almost exclusively with longer speeches, whereas earlier in the play there's been a lot of back and forth, certainly in that Pyramus and Thisbe scene where it was just all commenting on everything. And now you have these longer speeches, and Oberon's speech really brings things to a close in a magical way. But of course, that isn't the end of the play either, because after all those fairies sweep off to do their job, and Oberon and Titania go off to make magic babies, we get an epilogue. And this is actually kind of a nice in-joke, because earlier on, when Bottom asked if they wanted an epilogue, Theseus said, no, no, no epilogue, don't excuse your play. But actually, the actor playing Puck comes out, and he does a true epilogue. And what makes it an epilogue? Well, number one, it doesn't have that much to do with the play, but number two, the person who speaks the epilogue is usually basically half out of character. They're acknowledging they're an actor in the play. There's a famous one at the end of As You Like It. There's a famous one at the end of The Tempest. This is another, maybe the most famous epilogue Shakespeare ever writes. And it really ties all of his themes together. Because the actor comes out as the one who plays Puck, who plays Robin Goodfellow, and he says, If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended. And there's that word again, shadows. Remember earlier where they talked about how the best in this kind are but shadows? Well, yeah, shadows can mean shades. It can mean spirits, magical beings, but it can also mean actors. So he's saying... If we actors have offended, you know, by not acting well, think but this and all is mended. Everything is fixed or improved or made right. Just think this thing. And what is the this that you should think? That you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. Aha! More sleep. More dreaming. So visions can be things you saw. There's that image of seeing again. But it can also be dreams. Images you see while you're asleep. So in some ways, he's comparing the act of performing a play in a playhouse to being asleep and having visions appear to you in your dreams. And this weak and idle theme, no more yielding but a dream, gentles, do not reprehend. So there's that self-deprecation that's always in these epilogues. This weak and idle theme, theme being sort of the subject matter of the play, and he calls it weak and idle, like deficient or lackluster, and idle meaning stupid or foolish. He says it isn't yielding anything more than a dream, yielding meaning producing or giving rise to anything more than a dream does, which is nothing. So if it was just a dream, he says gentles, in other words, ladies and gentlemen of the audience, do not reprehend. Don't rebuke us for that. Just imagine all this stupid play was just a dream. He says, if you pardon, we will mend. This is a nice echo of earlier when he said, think but this and all is mended. He says, if you pardon us for our terribleness, we will mend. In other words, we'll improve. Maybe we'll improve next time. And as I am an honest puck, if we have unearned luck now to scape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long. So he says, as I am an honest puck, since I'm honest, which can mean honorable or even just well-intentioned, if we have unearned luck, like if we just got lucky and didn't earn it, to scape the serpent's tongue, scape just being short for escape or avoid. And what's this serpent's tongue? Well, what sound do serpents make? They hiss, which is also the sound that an audience that doesn't like a play makes. So if we're lucky enough to get away without the audience booing us, we will make amends ere long. We know that phrase making amends, but what it literally means is to pay someone back with money for a wrong done to them. And we'll do that ere long. In other words, before too long. And he says, else the puck a liar call, else you're meaning otherwise. So if we don't make amends eventually, you can call me a liar. And he ends it by saying, so good night unto you all. Which is interesting too, because it's really only night in the play. As you may know, early in Shakespeare's career, most of his plays were performed outside in the afternoon. This may be another reason why some people are led to believe that this was done for a royal wedding. So it actually would have been nighttime. And he calls for one last request. He says, give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. What does that mean, give me your hands? Well, it can mean shaking a hand in friendship, but here it probably also means applause. So if we're friends, clap for me, and Robin shall restore amends. In other words, make amends, like he said just a few lines ago. We'll pay you back for the things that were done wrong to you. And this is fun. This is definitely the tone of most epilogues. This kind of, sorry this play was so bad, but I hope you liked it anyway, and please don't boo us, please cheer us. 
But what's so beautiful and fun about this particular speech is that Shakespeare manages to tie in the themes of the play to it. In particular, this idea of dreaming and performing a play and falling in love as being similar and related. That's what really makes this such an original play. You wouldn't think these themes would have anything to do with each other. But when you start thinking about it based on your own experiences, it just feels incredibly right. If you've ever been in a play, for example, you pretend to be the shadow of something else. You put on a costume for a little while. You perform a play one night, and at the end of it, it's gone, like it was a ghost. Or if you've seen a great play, you leave the theater, and it's like you were in a dream for a few hours. And stepping out onto the regular street outside can be a shock. Or if you've been in love, that can feel like being in a dream too, as though you were under a spell. And when you come out of it, you have no idea why you were in love with that person at all. It's like waking up very suddenly from a dream. And this is really what Shakespeare does as well as anyone, which is to keep his themes really original and consistent. And I always find at the end of seeing a production of this play, even though I'm reminded every time I see it how preposterous a lot of it is, especially the last act, I always feel like I've been put under a spell at the end. It's incredibly effective. There's a reason it gets performed this much. Not just because it's short and magical, but because at the end you feel like you've been in a dream too. So that's the end of Clear Shakespeare Midsummer Night's Dream. Thanks for making it all the way through with me. And please just remember, I've tried to give you the meanings of all these words as best I can, but it's possible that you might disagree with one of my readings. That's great. Just pick whatever works for you. I've given you a few of my own personal opinions, and I hope you'll kind of argue with them. Because now, in the words of Captain Planet, the power is yours. All I try to do with Clear Shakespeare is just give you the closest possible look at the language to make it as clear as I possibly can, but it's still just words on a page. And if you want to bring it alive for yourself, you need to make it as personal to yourself as you possibly can. I don't want you just to know the meanings of these words. I want you to have opinions about them, specific opinions based on individual specific words. The enemy of all art is being general. And if you're actually going to produce this play, that goes double for you. You have to decide how you, personally, would say these words in these particular moments if you had to live in them. Look, if you want to switch around scenes or language or take out characters entirely, set it on the moon, I don't care, do it. Go with God. But I need you to swear one thing to me. That everything these characters say has to be deeply rooted in this language. No recitation of meaningless poetry. No explaining concepts to the audience. No, you have to make these words completely yours. And then you have to speak them as though those are the only words you could have spoken at that moment. All this podcast is for is to figure out what the people are saying, what language they're using to say that, but really that's just a starting point. Your job now, after I've given you the what and the how, is to go for the why, those sort of hidden motivations underneath that language. Because you, as an actor, have to find a way to speak these words that sounds like you. Find that personal, idiosyncratic interpretation. Because if it's grounded in the text, and it's grounded in you, it can never be wrong. It's going to feel real and true to you, and so it's going to feel real and true to the audience. Now, if it's just general and vague, or if it's based on somebody else's idea of somebody else's idea of somebody else's idea of this long tradition, well, that's just going to be dead and fake, and it's going to waste everyone's time. And that, I think, is why people who are watching or reading this find it boring, because it doesn't feel like it belongs to them in any way. So no matter who you are, if you're an expert or someone reading this for the first time, if you're 100 years old or 10 years old, if you're in Montana or Australia or Bangladesh, whoever you are, wherever you're from, this can belong to you, but it only works if you meet the opinion of the playwright with your own opinion. I see all literature as a kind of chemical reaction, because the author puts these words out into the world, but the reaction can only be completed when a reader or an audience reads or hears those words. These great works of literature are only great when the reader sees a moment or hears a word and says, oh my god, I recognize that feeling in myself. Otherwise, why even bother reading it? Read something else. So my hope with Clear Shakespeare is that it's helped to clear away some of those barriers to reading Shakespeare's plays, just like you would read any other book or play. And look, that just might not be possible. 
the 400 years of tradition might be too much, but that's at least what I'm trying to do. I hope you enjoy Clear Shakespeare. I hope it helps you. One last pitch. This takes me a lot of time and effort and money to create, and I'd really appreciate it if you could help to make this podcast possible. I'm going to keep going as long as I can. So please take a second and go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks. And if you can't do that, I'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you really love it, please leave a nice review. That way other people can find this. Thank you so much for listening. That's the end of Clear Shakespeare Midsummer. Bye.